This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we're at Kenwood in London to meet a Dutch master. And the thing about Rembrandt is that he's a kind of perfect enigma in that way. We have got the outline skeleton of his life, but we haven't got that bit in between. And so in that bit in between, you can speculate all you like as to what he was thinking or what he was feeling. We'll hear how Rembrandt's self-portrait with two circles on display at Kenwood is considered one of his greatest works. You know, you can read about it all you want, you can look at it on the internet, but you have to stand in front of it to get it. You know, it's magic, I think. And we'll discover how visitor selfies are being featured in a new exhibition here to mark 350 years since the artist's death. First, though, let's step back from the easel and get a brief perspective on what we're covering soon on the English Heritage Podcast. If you want to get to the core of Wellington's collection, this room tells you a lot with lots of Spanish, Dutch, Italian, Flemish, French art. Ron writes to a relative to say that he thinks that these are possibly the first convalescents to actually come to a country house after leaving hospital. So there's a strong possibility that Rest was maybe the first country house to be used as a hospital during the First World War. In 1821, a New York academic and poet reinvents St Nicholas, known in Dutch as Santa Claus, instead of shortening Nicholas to uh, Nick, the Dutch shorten it to Klaus. Santa Claus. Join us every Thursday for new episodes and make sure you hit subscribe as well. Now, today you join us on the northern edge of Hampstead Heath in North London at the glorious neoclassical villa of Kenwood. We're here to pay a special visit to one man and one painting in particular. Hello, I'm Wendy Monkhouse and I'm a senior curator for English Heritage. And we're here at Kenwood to talk about one of the greatest of the painters of the Dutch Golden Age, Rembrandt. Now, just first off, Wendy, whereabouts are we standing on the Kenwood estate? We've got the house behind us. Yes, we're standing on the terrace and this is the south front and it's overlooking Hampstead Heath and this beautiful designed landscape by Repton, south towards London. And we can see the lake and also we can see some very tall buildings, if not skyscrapers, in the city, I suspect looming up above the trees, Mm. a grey versus a a green contrast there. Now, is this a bit of a landscape that Rembrandt might have been interested in? Definitely. Uh, He loved nothing more than kind of going outside the city and sketching and producing beautiful uh, drawings of the countryside around Amsterdam, which appear in his engravings. So it's the kind of thing he might have done, of left London to get some country air and to see a different view. Before we meet Rembrandt the man and his canvas and the canvas he painted on inside, can you tell us a bit more about who Rembrandt was, what his full name was, where he was from, etc., etc.? His name is Rembrandt van Rijn. He's born in Leiden in 1606, grows up there and moves eventually to train in Amsterdam for about six months and then moves back to Leiden, a little bit of shuttling going on. We're talking all of 25 miles, but nonetheless, this is a move from a provincial city to the big city where things are happening. Then he eventually moves and settles in Amsterdam and becomes a very successful painter. And what were the main events of his period in history. He's living in what we call the Dutch Golden Age, the first 50 years of the 17th century, where the Low Countries, the Netherlands, are becoming a world power. They've got 
the Dutch East India Company, enabling them to sort of dominate trade. Banking is developing, financing is developing. This beautiful city is springing up. So he lived in this incredibly harmonious architectural environment, as well as an environment in which people had the means and the intent to adorn their houses with extraordinary paintings. So he had a sort of a ready group of patrons and connoisseurs who could appreciate his work. Well, you talked about these extraordinary paintings. Shall we go inside and get a look at this extraordinary Rembrandt that we're going to talk about today? Yes, let's. You know you're in an old house when you've got a creaky door. I'm quite embarrassed about that. Um, <laughs> I'll have to get that fixed. And we're just coming through the dining room lobby. I hear that he was quite preoccupied with his own image. And he did more than 70 self-portraits, I believe. Yeah, um, almost 80, that's right. But this is not to imply that he's, he's in any way a vain person or a narcissist, because he definitely wasn't. But we are lucky enough to have this whole kind of life of self-portraiture, him pulling faces, him sort of uh, expressing different emotions, him in different roles, and then him perhaps as himself. Well, Wendy, we're standing by a mirror here, just on the edge of the room which houses main Rembrandt that we're going to talk about today. We talked about, obviously, the fact that he was quite a prolific self-portrait artist. But how does an artist paint oneself? I presume it might involve a mirror, which is on the wall here to my left. I think so. I mean, there are different self-portraits in every age. You can do a self-portrait if you can remember what your face looks like. But otherwise, there are ways of doing it with a camera obscura, with optics and with mirrors. Nowhere have we got him showing the mirrors which he used to do it. So the magic trick, if it is a magic trick, isn't revealed. But the intensity with which he depicts himself suggests that he has got access to a mirror. Or at least a really photographic memory. Mm, yeah, maybe that too. Yeah, could be either way. Let's enter the room itself and uh, tell us exactly what room we, we are entering. So we're in the... Sorry, I'm dropping my voice because there are other visitors in here and I don't want to disturb them. Um, we're in the dining room of Kenwood and it's a sort of very grand room with some extraordinary paintings in it and black leather chairs which we've put in here so that people can sit and be comfortable and this room is presented as a sort of a picture gallery, sort of an 18th century formal room. But if you look around, you can see Vermeer's guitar player over there. You can see Franz Hals. You can see the second Rembrandt that Lord Ivor thought he bought, which um, it was decided is actually by Ferdinand Boll. You know, this is a sort of room of masterpieces. So. Absolutely. And the thing about this room, which we mentioned in episode seven, mm. was that when, as soon as you walk into this room, the silk wallpaper really changes the sound yeah. in here. It mm. um, sort of slightly mutes the sound and yeah. makes it very intimate, which is a great atmosphere for looking at paintings. It feels mm. a bit more like a library in a sense, as mm. opposed to a dining room. And we've got a lot of carpet on the floor as well and long hanging curtains, uh, very mm. thick materials. Mm. So that creates this sort of sense of quiet and contemplation, which I think is mm. really useful when looking at a, a masterpiece like this. Yeah, it feels very private. It feels very safe. And it doesn't feel like an art gallery and it doesn't feel like a sort of country house experience. So it's something quite special and quite different. Absolutely. 
So we can see the man himself, and the funny thing is, it's kind of the opposite of the James Joyce novel, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, because this is a portrait of the artist as an older man. Mm-hmm. How old was he when Rembrandt painted this? He's, he's approaching 60. He's almost 60. He survived his first wife dying, Saskia. He's survived also the death of three children. You know, he had three children who died, and then one, Titus, who survives. Then there's a sort of interim mistress after the death of Saskia, and then there's his final life partner, Hendrika Stoffels, who, with whom he has a daughter, Cornelia, in the last decade of his life. So we're in, we're in the home straight here in the last decade, and he's not a good-looking man, he's not an ugly man. He looks like he could have been a baker or a butcher <laughs> or a cobbler. Yeah, that squishy face, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Slightly rotund. A little bit, Friendly yeah. face. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what else can we see in the picture? Obviously, he's wearing a white cap. He's wearing this sort of white undershirt and then a gilt chain around it and this square-necked, rich Venetian red velvet, maybe undergarment. Over the top of that, he's wearing this extraordinarily dark brown, golden fur-lined tabard as a cloak over it. And then on his head, a little white studio cap. There is a really interesting thing, actually, about this outfit, which I just noticed today, and I'm just going to go and get something. Is that your bag on, Jeff? At this point, Wendy goes over to her bag Today, to I just um, found this portrait of Saskia in profile, which is in the Museum Landschaft Hessen Castle. Um, and here we've got Saskia, his wife, wearing a white undershirt, gilt chains, a square-necked Venetian red underdress... Hmm. And a fur-trimmed coat. And it's very similar, as you say, to what he's wearing in this picture. It is extraordinarily similar. So either we've got a <clears throat> serious case of gender-fluid clothing, or we've got, and this is 1633 um, to 42, it's dating. So this is a lot later, but how strange. Uh, he also makes a copy of it uh, when he has to sell the picture later on. And I'm just using this wonderful catalogue um, of the exhibition Rembrandt's social network, which was on this year at the Rembrandt House uh, in Amsterdam. So do you think this painting of himself here is in some ways uh, an homage to his wife? What I do think is that these were studio props, this outfit, because other people will disagree about this. Julius Bryant's written about it and said that he's a painter wearing ordinary studio clothes. I'm not sure about that, that those are ordinary clothes. Um, They look like they'd be quite hard to move around in, being heavy and potentially expensive, so you wouldn't want to get lots of paint on them. I don't think you want to get paint on a fur fur coat, no, not really. No, No. or velvet. But on the other hand, if they are the stock, you know, robes or whatever that you could use to dress up and be someone else, I don't know what they are. It's very, it's hard to interpret them. But the amazing thing about this painting is everybody looks at it and sees something different. So some people will say, here he is in his ordinary clothes. Others will say, look at him in his extraordinary rich apparel. The point is he's holding in his hand his palette, paintbrushes, mole stick. And here, right on the edge of the picture, is the canvas that he's working on. So do you see that line going down up yes, there? That is of... the painting, his self-portrait that he is... Or he is looking at you, you're the sitter, and painting your portrait. And what are these sort of semicircles that we can see to his right shoulder and his left shoulder and sort of taking off his cap? The circles have occasioned an awful lot of argument and debate and interest for several hundred years. They could be a number of things. 
The question is whether they're an unfinished representation of a map of the world, possibly, with the two globes on either side. It's been suggested that they are an allusion to Giotto drawing a perfect circle in a single stroke. They have been suggested to be Kabbalistic signs. They have been suggested to be geometric fillers. There's very, very strong geometry in the paintings. You can see there's this really strong diagonal that goes all the way through along the line of the mull stick and also the light punching down through there. They fill the space in the background. They're not perfect circles. There's something wrong with all of those theories, but the debate continues as to what the two circles are. As we get a little bit closer to the picture, you see that some of the detail is actually not detail, in the sense that some of the brushes are quite indistinct. Some of the brush strokes you can clearly see, they're quite broad. Some art critics have said that perhaps this is slightly unfinished. Would you say that it is or it isn't? Well, I suppose there are areas of the canvas that are much more finished than other areas, and that partly is where the picture derives its power from. We don't know, we can't say what state it should be in because it's not signed, it's not dated. People have argued that that's because it's not finished. If you look on Google Arts and Culture, you'll see an incredibly high-res version of the painting where you can literally look at every single brushstroke. You can look into his eyes and see everything there, even more closely. The experience of seeing it today here as we are is wonderful, but you've got glass on the painting for its own protection, which it wouldn't have had, and you've got a picture light, which will be changed shortly, where we're going to get a better wash of light on it. But yeah, no, there are definitely areas that are less finished and areas that are more finished. Mm. But that doesn't mean to say the painting's unfinished. The way it's lit today, obviously, with that picture light, is really drawing attention to his expression mm. and his face. Mm. And the top half of his body, really, his head and shoulders. Yeah. What do you think that expression is saying? <laughs> it's a Mona Lisa question, isn't it, really? But um... It is. Um, I think he's giving the viewer not a hard look, but a very, very searching look. And it's that intimacy, that's what this painting, why this painting is so famous, because it's that kind of intimacy between you and him. And after 350 years, if you spend enough time with this picture, you feel like he's somebody you might... No. There's something deeply sympathetic about his face. You can see this frown line here, and you can see it's not a raised eyebrow because the eyebrow arch is there, but do you see that line going up there to, on his right eye? Yeah. There And these furrows down here. This is a face that we can recognise because it's not a face that's been flattered. I see this as a portrait of somebody who is kind of at peace with himself and has enormous sort of inner power. And I think the number of portraits that he did were a searching to try and express things that are hard to put into words. I mean, that's the point about this picture. You have to come and stand here in front of it. You know, you can read about it all you want. You can look at it on the internet, but you have to stand in front of it to get it. You know, it's magic, I think. There are people who come here every week to see it, who just come to check in and look at it. And the thing about Rembrandt is that we've got this incredible collection of paintings of himself showing his face and then there's a certain amount of a documentary record but no diaries no deep meaningful personal letters explaining his thought processes explaining who he was so he's a kind of perfect enigma in that way we have got the outline skeleton of his life and we've got an incredibly rich archive of what he looked like but we haven't got that bit in between and so in that bit in between you can speculate all you like as to what he was thinking or what he was feeling. He's just saying, let the work for, speak for itself. 
and speaking of his body of work, all these self-portraits that he did over his life, mm. do you think in some ways that's a photo book of his life and he want, wanted to leave something behind for other people? Um, I think that's a, a, a lovely idea and I can see where you're going with this. But the question about what you leave for posterity and what was an exercise in just exercising your craft at the time, again, it's very difficult to say. What he's doing for money, need some money, do another picture, um, maybe. But taken all together, yeah, they do form that, even though they're now dispersed all over the world, not just all over Amsterdam. I think this one, it just has this kind of staying power and it speaks to every generation. You know, there's not a point where people are just not interested in it. Okay, well, Wendy, on that note, let's head out of the room now so that other visitors can have a look at the piece. Wendy and I then discussed the plans to mark 350 years since the death of Rembrandt with a new exhibition at Kenwood. But really, the purpose of what we're doing is to kind of situate it in, in the 21st century. And I got interested in the idea of selfie generation and what making self-portraits was felt like really and what it was about and I started thinking that it was just kind of narcissistic and uh, and not very interesting and then you know changed my mind about it and so we're going to bring that into juxtaposition with Rembrandt. So we've come out of the dining room and we're standing in a kind of I suppose vestibule. With an oculus above us. But I understand that the Rembrandt is going to move from the other side of the mirror mm-hmm. to a wall just in front of us here. Yeah, all of these paintings won't be here, so we're going to just reconfigure this area. People are come, going to come in through that door there, and they're going to be confronted by arguably the greatest self-portrait ever painted. We can discuss that. And behind them, there is going to be a digital work of art created by people taking photographs, taking selfies. And, yeah, it's meant to be a kind of exploration of uh, making your own portrait. And we hope that people who are interested in taking selfies maybe will come to Kenwood for the first time, and maybe people who are interested in in old masters will take a selfie for the first time, and there'll be some kind of dialogue and crossover there. There's a cross-generational attraction there. Yeah, absolutely. So will the visitors have to take uh, selfies with their own mobile phones? No, there's going to be iPads. And it's going to be people to guide you through it if you haven't done it before. Right, okay. Um, and if people want to do things with it, I mean, it's called No Filter because uh, obviously Rembrandt's painting, we think, is unvarnished, no filter. Many no filter pictures have got filters on them, but we just want to explore that, you know, what people are doing when they're manipulating reality. And maybe that's a creative act or maybe it's an attempt to manage your own image. But Rembrandt's managing his image, so there is a commonality there. For me, it's about getting my left side, um, which I find <laughs> is my best side. So that's the selfie um, thing that's taking place. And then yeah. what happens to all these selfie pictures that have been collected on these iPads? Um, they're all going to be uploaded into a composite image. So you will see yourself, but very, very small, just as a tiny element. You know, you might end up as his fur collar or his left eye or his nose. And I presume a clever computer program takes all those images right. and then blends them so yeah. that they mould into the, the Rembrandt yeah, itself. they do, and it will look extraordinary. We're doing this one because of the anniversary. Anniversaries tend to spark people's imagination and enthusiasm, but fortunately the Friends of Kenwood have come forward once again and incredibly generously funded this display. So 
they've provided the wherewithal, but we've got the will to do, to do it. So it's a small team of myself and the curator for Kenwood, Esme Whitaker, and assistant curator Louise Cooling. And we've all been working on it for the last nine months. It's going to be really, really interesting. We've never done anything quite like this before, or with the Rembrandt at Kenwood. So yeah, it's going to be very exciting. How long will people be able to come for and take these selfies? And then how long will it take for them to all get put together? They can take as long as they like in uh, getting the perfect shot. We, I, we really don't mind. Um, the upload's instant, so they're going to see themselves instantaneously. And the exhibition itself, how long will that take? Um, it'll go on till January. The exhibition will open on the 4th of October and it will close in January. Lastly then, looking back at Rembrandt and his work and his legacy, doing research for the podcast, I read in the Guardian newspaper that the Rembrandt self-portrait that you have here at Kenwood is the single greatest painting in a British collection. Would you agree with that assessment? I think it could be. You know, not wanting to start a kind of uh, competitive struggle as to who's got the best picture. I think that we have a very, very great painting here, that it's a great painting for any era. We're very lucky. It never disappoints. It held its own amongst all of the 20th century masters at Gagosian, we think, and most of the critics thought too. There's nothing difficult about it. There's nothing hard to understand. And you can look at it for a very, very long time. I don't know if that's the test of a, a great self-portrait. Captivating. Yeah, it is captivating. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Kenwood's plans for the 350th anniversary of Rembrandt's death, just head to the Kenwood House page on the English Heritage website. We're back next week. Until then, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hello, this is Josie Lung, here to tell you about Speaking with Shadows, a podcast series from English Heritage, presented by me. I think the major misconception was that women lead very dull lives in the Middle Ages. When you're wandering about a historic place, what voices do you hear echoing off the ruins of castles and abbeys? Are they the ones of the people your school teacher told you about? Or do you wonder about the people that history forgot? I do think we would connect the events of Clifford's Tower with uh, more recent persecution of Jews because Jewish people are suffering from a similar set of rumors and myths that are very dangerous and completely unfounded. Let's face it, there are a lot of silences in our history textbooks. Have you heard about the revolutionary leader from the Caribbean who was imprisoned in a Hampshire castle one freezing winter? What about the pioneering woman who hot-footed it to Sussex from London's radical theatre scene and directed thousands of local actors in a performance that lasted days? And what happened to the people who didn't agree with going to war in the early 20th century? Bert Brocklesby takes the train by himself to Darlington and walks the five miles to Richmond, perfectly of his own volition. He says in his memoir that he puts his cap on backwards uh, as a sort of act of defiance walking through Darlington and knocks on the castle gate. It makes you wonder what's hiding in the shadowy corners of England's history. From castles on the south coast to Hadrian's Wall in the far north, I'm seeking out the voices that too often go unheard. 
With the help of researchers and local community members, I'll bring you six stories from history that we should all be talking about. Marinier was asked to sign the prison register. He declined, saying, I do not know the mystery of the pen. It is by this, touching the hilt of his sword, that I have been given the rank that I have. Here is my aide-de-camp. He knows how to write and he will sign it for me. Subscribe to Speaking with Shadows, the podcast that listens to the people that history forgot and get every episode delivered to your podcast feed for free. Watch out for the first one on Tuesday the 8th of October. You can find out more at english-heritage.org.uk slash speakingwithshadows. I can't wait for you to hear this show.